You know, we're really, really good at talking about how to collect data, you know, how to make sure we have everything tuned up to do personalization correctly. You know, we're talking about how to make sure we're not getting in trouble with GDPR and compliance issues. We're really good about talking about data visualization techniques, but not a lot of people in our space are talking about, well, how do we overcome imposter syndrome? How do we overcome this feeling that we don't belong at the table? How do we properly prepare to present to executives? Welcome to 33 Tangents, a weekly podcast featuring a rotating panel of co-hosts that all work together in the same company, but live in different areas of the world. The discussions cover a wide variety of topics from digital analytics to working remotely to current happenings in business and technology. Our regular day-to-day conversations often go off in various directions, and the goal of this podcast is to share our ideas and find new ways to engage with others. All right, we are recording. So what's going on? Uh, trying to get back into the uh, the flow of things uh, after being in LA for a week. Back in the home office. So Yeah, how was LA? It was good. Uh, hot in the valley. Um, but man, there's some good eats. So much good food to explore. So Now did you drive it? Yeah, yeah. It was... I went, I did, uh, half, halfway on the way there, but all the way on the way back. And it's just stupid. It's just brutal too, too much. How long of a drive? Uh, well with stops, it was about 11 hours. Okay. So you can definitely do it much faster than that. But, uh, I was, uh, I had no time that I had to hit. So I tend to take it a bit more chill. So just, just a fun little road trip then. Yeah. Yeah. But dude, I have to tell you, I found, well, I didn't find, it was recommended uh, near Cal State Northridge, this uh, Vietnamese restaurant. Um, it, one, two, maybe 10 tables uh, in this like tiny little strip mall. Uh, and I went at, ooh, I want to say a little after 10 at night and it was packed. There were like two groups really? in front. Um but man, amazing. Uh, so owner operated place, um, and sit down, the owner comes up before I can even get it out. Like what I want to order. He's like, what do you like? What, what flavors do you like? How spicy do you like it? How hungry are you? And I'm kind of rattling off some answers. He's like, all right, I'm going to make you the best banh mi sandwich you've ever had. I'm like, okay. (laughs) So it was just such a cool experience. And by the way, it's a vegan restaurant. Interesting. Um, Okay. So he made me a duck banh mi uh, and I don't know how they, it was incredible. It was delicious. Um, what was the name of the restaurant? I think it, it was called, hold on. I have to look it up. Uh, it's in Reseda, uh, and it is called uh, something Loi Thai. Uh, hold on. Should have had it up. Let's see. Um, I switched Instagram accounts. I've got to go on my computer. See, we're new to try to manage the Instagram. It is called uh, Vin Loi Tofu. Okay. In Reseda. Um, 
I posted a picture on my Instagram of my sandwich. Here I'll, I'll uh anyway, it was incredible, but it was just this like experience that that the that the owner created. It was just it was cool. It was mm-hmm. cool. So yeah. Um there was a restaurant we went to when my brother-in-law, so my wife's brother and his family lived out there. We last visited them five years ago i think we were out there and they took us to this vegan restaurant because they were in the la area they you know now granted there's tons of them there but like i was curious to see if it was the same one because we went to this great vegan restaurant for breakfast mm. small little place and the the tofu scramble i had for breakfast was just amazing it's, you know, we, we had this discussion. Did we have this discussion on the podcast a couple episodes back about scarcity and how it forces you to be deliberate and creative in the things yes. that you create? That's the kind of the feeling I get. You know, it's like when you have this limited set of ingredients that you can work with, it forces you to be incredibly deliberate and creative in in what you are you are building. Um it reminds me of a place. So John um, took me to a place in LA called uh, Cafe Gratitude, which is a vegan restaurant. Um, and I had uh, enchiladas, um, which were the, uh, I guess the cheese is made out of cashew or I, it was incredible. Uh, again, I think just this, this, this sense that you have a scarcity, you don't have like a million items available to you. You have to really think about it, which could go really well or really bad, you know, like yeah. if you don't pull it off, it's just not going to be good. But if you're really good at what you do, man, you can create some amazing, amazing food with it. So anyway, it was a fun experience. Yeah. 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 It reminds me a little bit. There used to be this sandwich shop here in Utah that I would frequent for many, many years. We've probably talked about it uh, where I'd go in and the owner would be like, oh, hey, Jason, you getting the and that like, he would have my order memorized. Um, and he did that with like tons of people and, you know, it was, it was by far the best sandwich you could get in the area. But I think so many people went there just for the experience that the owner created, you know, it's just, (laughs) it felt so cool to go in there, see this owner operator behind the counter, recognize you when you come in, remember the sandwich you normally get just feels good. You know, sadly, well, good for him. He, he retired and is enjoying his life now. I'm as an owner operator showing up at the restaurant every day, except maybe Sunday. Uh, I'm sure gets gets draining after a while, and he ran it for a long time, so he's off enjoying retirement. But I sure do miss that place. Oh, that, that's awesome! Yeah, it was funny. The um, today is Wednesday, so is Monday, Wednesday. Monday, Monday was Labor Day, and my wife and I were talking about how you know with all the small little shops at the the shore points we go to um like labor day there the crowd and you know the crowds start to drop you know towards the end of labor day because everyone's going home everyone's got school and work the next day so like that tuesday and wednesday following labor day they close they just straight up close like Mm. we're taking a couple days off you know you know now the busy season's over and because it was last year we went down we stayed down a couple days after labor day because we could we were in a position where we could and that tuesday we went out like oh let's go here and get some lunch we love going to this place but it's always crowded so we go to there they're closed we decided mm-hmm. to go to another place they're closed everybody was closed like we're off <laughs> figure it out on your own so you ended up at pizza hut 
No, no. I think we, we quick ran and got like something from like the grocery store and quick made it at home. Got it. Yeah. I hear you. Yeah. You know, we all need some downtime. Yeah. All need some downtime. Well, how was your long weekend? It was nice. It was good. Lots of time spent swimming at the pool. Um, got together with the family at my brother's house. They had a pool put in over the winter. Oh, so nice. a nice big family pool party there. And yeah, you know, like we, we got a uh, membership to the local swim club this year. So that closed up on Monday. So we spent some time there Monday. Um, yeah, it was, it was nice. It was a nice relaxing weekend, you know, to wrap up the summer. Now, granted, since our little one isn't, you know, he doesn't go off to school for another year and a half. We're taking advantage of it. We've got some stuff planned in the next couple of weeks to take advantage of like the last little bits of summer in September with everybody back to school. Nice. Yeah, um, three weeks. I'm, we got a week coming up at the shore, which ooh. we're looking forward to. Like, I'm excited for it. a week at the shore, September. Yeah. It's dead down there. Like, the I've already got, got things like planned out. Like, you know, it's going to get darker earlier. So it's not like we could stay out too late with him. Like, you know, typically a vacation you're up a little bit later but we'll go to bed earlier but like we'll be up at the crack of dawn like let's get up at the crack of dawn and walk the boardwalk when it's just the locals out at this point that's awesome yeah enjoy it and i can't help stop picturing your pool party as the pool party from meet the fuckers i'm trying to remember i haven't seen that movie in ages so they're they're, the they're 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 they've got this like great spread of food out by the pool and like they're they're having a fairly nice game of volleyball in the in the pool and uh and Fokker just gets up and nails that yeah it got a little intense yeah well okay so the the food was away from the pool but we did like we had like my brother had the had a volleyball, but then they also had like the the pool basketball hoop. Oh, so yeah. it turned into like a three on three with like me and my brother, my <laughs> uncle, my brother in law, my nephew, and it got a little intense. It, 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 the, the, those those uh, games tend to uh, trend that way as long as no one got injured. Nah, no one got injured. No one got injured. Unlike the Turkey Bowl win. <laughs> uh, there were a couple times with uh, with the family Turkey Bowl where I pulled a hamstring. Right. It, every year. It's like, yeah, nah, we're still 20. We can do this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. So I am I'm struggling for a segue into into our topic. So I'm just going to to jump into it because that's, you know, we, we can we can get bits for forever about like the, the fun stuff we want to do, but like, let's talk a bit about analytics. Um, so I, um, I want to continue something we talked about a couple weeks ago. You know, we were talking on a particular episode and you brought up about the, the people who, um, who work within analytics. So, so your analysts, your, your data scientists and, what they think about with their job day to day. And really part of this is, is part of this conversation is going to be around taking, taking risk because we, we were talking about, you know, where we started to talk about, and we kind of stopped cause we're like, Oh, this is good. Um, good topic on its own. We, we were talking about how implementation and constantly sending reports are, are low risk. Um, you know, this is, this is the volume that we saw. This is the activity that we saw. We deployed these new dimensions, all of that. It's low risk. It shows 
action um, mm-hmm. that, that's going on. Um, it's the minute you start making recommendations based on data, like you, you cross this line and that's this line that people just, people tend to stop at. Um, you know, so why is there this risk with stepping over that line from moving from reporting into insights, into insights, making recommendations and saying, not only did we see this with the data, we believe the data is telling us X or that we should do Y. Yeah. And I think there's, there's several reasons why this is happening, but you know, the fundamental step over that line is if I'm sending out a report, if I'm enabling you to look at a dashboard, it's, Hey, I like, this is just the data. You know, I'm just, I'm just giving it to you. I'm just helping you consume it. Um, I'm, I'm not, I'm not making any real claims and there's this, this fuzzy area, um, that lots of organizations and agencies, uh, use called adding commentary, which is basically just pointing out the obvious, right? So you have a report, I'm going to send Jim a report. It's just, it's automated. It shows up in your inbox every Friday. The next step that kind of gets into this fuzzy area is I'm going to add commentary, so before I send it out, I'm saying, oh, by the way, Jim, you might want to take a look at the sales figure because it was up this week compared to last week. So again, I'm not really putting myself out there. I'm just kind of observing what's already there, right? Um, yeah, I, I can see that the number went from 10 to 20 this week. So it's up. Yeah, um, it's it's in that step over the line in which you you kind of put your yourself out there in that you're saying, okay, not only... Am I going to provide the data? I'm going to make some conclusions, provide some insights, maybe even give some recommendations based on what we're we're seeing in the data. Um, one, I think that puts a lot of people in the digital analytics space in a place of unease uh, because I think it's putting yourself out there. You know, we tend to be a bit more introverted, you know, kind of put me in the basement and work on stuff, but I don't necessarily want to sit at the boardroom table and talk about the results. So there's that unease of just kind of being out there. Um, But I think the bigger component of it is that, um, and, and rather than blaming the business, rather than blaming stakeholders for pushing back and being tough, which they should do, um, and which I was never trained to do when I first worked client side. I I remember I probably shared this story before. I remember the one of the first times that I presented to our executive team, I nearly left the meeting in tears. Like they beat me up. I felt like they were asking all these hard questions, but they were doing what they should have been doing, right? They wanted to understand the data and I needed to come prepared to defend the position, defend the data. And I wasn't, I, you know, I didn't, I had no idea that that was part of, of my job. And I think especially in the digital analytics space, more than the broader analytics space, business analytics space in general, we, we don't really, we don't really talk about this topic and we don't really train our analysts how to handle these situations. So we say, Hey, you know, here's how to collect data. Here's how to run some calculations, but we don't really tell them, well, here's how to think about it in a business context. Here's how you might want to think about presenting to a team of stakeholders. Here's what you need to be prepared for. So often they get in those situations and their first experience in their mind is a highly negative experience because they feel like, you know, they're, they're basically getting kicked in the face saying, well, wait a minute, how did you calculate this? Or what do you mean by that? And I think our initial reaction, at least mine was, was to become defensive and take it personally rather than say, 
oh, that's a good question. Of course they would want to know how I calculated that number. You know, if they didn't, I should be suspicious of why they're just taking me at face value. So I think a lot of, a lot of that is, again, just putting yourself out there. One, we lack training on how to properly present to a team of stakeholders and executives. Uh, and two, I just think in general, our personality is a bit more um, wanting to be behind the scenes and putting yourself out there, whether it's live in a meeting or, or via email, you're putting yourself out there and opening yourself up to tough questions. Maybe people questioning why, you know, who's Jason to give us input on how to run our business. And, and that can be scary. And I think that for that reason, um, so many in the digital space kind of walk that line, you know, are okay providing a little bit of commentary. But if I'm going to take a big step over that line and say, and here's what the data means, and here's what our recommendations are, that's scary to a lot, a lot of people. And I think we need to do a better job mentoring and training our analysts on how to handle that situation. Because if we can't do that, we're really holding ourselves back from creating the value that I know we're capable of creating. Yeah. And you got into where <clears throat> my, my next question is like, what you see is, is missing. Why is that the case? Like, why do analysts feel timid, especially if they have the data to, to back them up? Um, sorry, say that again. I was sidetracked. No, I was just, you know, continuing. I was just saying like that you actually started to get into my next question with, what what do you think is is missing with analysts being so timid, especially if they have the data to to back up the perspective that that they're bringing? Yeah, and I ask that question more or less to continue the conversation. I mean, I know the answer too. I've been in those those, those kinds of meetings too, where you have an executive who has their opinion and will be very very blunt with mm -hmm. defending it even if there is data to um, provide a, a another perspective on it so i i've been in similar meetings to you where someone presents something or, or even i've provided like an, um, a perspective on how something should be done and someone gets up there and just starts browbeating people and you're like, okay, okay, I'll go back to my desk. <laughs> well, so part of that is obviously lots of top level executives are extreme A type personalities. So, you know, that's just going to come with the territory. But I also think as analysts, if you're timid, if it, you come across like you don't have a lot of confidence in what you're doing, it's like blood in the water, you know? So you're, you're taking a, a probably already very strong type A personality and you're showing weakness, they are going to to pounce on that. They they smell that. The oh, minute yeah. they feel like you feel the slightest bit unsure, they are going to jump on that. Man, and I, in, in full transparency, you know, I've I've felt that way through most of my career, even into the first few years at 336. Um, and I can remember vividly the day where that changed. Uh, I was on site with a client. Uh, we were in a conference room full of big windows. Um, the CMO was there. Uh, I think the VP of sales was there. Um, one of the senior developers was there. Uh, and, and we were all kind of talking about data and, and talking about how we're, we're making use of data to inform the product roadmap. And I, 
I don't remember the exact conversation, but I remember sitting there and all of a sudden, like a bolt of lightning. I'm like, I am, when it comes to analytics, the smartest person in this room. <laughs> Not to be conceited or cocky or arrogant, but it was just this sense of, wait a minute, I belong here. Um, and that took several years into 33 sticks, if you can believe that, to like get to that level of confidence of, I know what the hell I'm doing and I belong at this table. And, and I think it's it's really important that, uh, again, I want to be careful to, to be clear that I'm not saying that we need to be, you know, type A personalities, super strong. We don't need to be jerks. We don't need to be cocky and conceited. But, you know, if we've been doing this for 15 years and we've put in the work, man, who else deserves to be at that at that table? And so I, I think I think it's such a big thing that creates this snowball effect where we show up, we come very well prepared to present our data and our insights, but we do so from a place where we're lacking confidence. We're in a room of people that were scared or intimidated by their titles. We start questioning ourselves like, I don't think I deserve to be in this room. And even though we have all the experience, we have put in the work to to provide a very meaningful presentation of our insights, it comes across again as very meek and timid and people pounce on that and they smell it and they sense it and it devalues what we're, we're delivering. And, and if nothing else, like we've put in the work, let's make sure that the way we present it doesn't take away from the value that we're creating. Cause not only does it hurt us in that meeting, it hurts us in how we're positioned. And then we kind of, slink back to our office and we say, you know what, I'll stick to sending out reports. And then it just snowballs. Well, it, it feels like in this particular space, there are a lot of folks that suffer from imposter syndrome. A lot. A lot. And, and do you think that is because of the space we're in and the environment that we're in? Or do you think that the role that we fit naturally attracts people that may be more pre predestined <laughs> pre predisposed. What's the right word? Um, more, more, uh, more in, in a space where they would suffer from that than, than maybe other jobs. It was funny as, as I was, as you were talking and I thought of that, like, wow, it's, there's a, there is a pot imposter syndrome and it just seems like, you know, you, you talk to folks in the space, you, you know, you follow a lot of these people on social media that they, they talk openly about the imposter syndrome they feel. And to answer your question, I kind of feel that it is the type of people it attracts. Yeah. It's, you know, it, it's definitely, yeah, I, I want to say it, it it attracts those people that are maybe normally pre, yeah, what's the word we're both trying <laughs> to find? Like the, the, the people that would fall into, into that kind of mindset Yeah, that I have, you know, I have what I need to prove a point, but maybe I don't. Um, and maybe it's the, the curious nature of of the space because you and i've talked many times about what we think will make people succeed like what are some of the characteristics and curiosity is yes. is, is is top of that list 
So could that curiosity um, be a double-edged sword where mm. um, you, the curiosity makes you successful in that, you know, you're constantly looking to, to learn more, but at the same time, that curiosity that knowing that there's always something else to learn or something else to seek out makes you doubt what you've found so far. So you're saying there's no doubt that we overanalyze everything <laughs> to maybe yes. our detriment. Uh, Potentially, yeah, I, yes. Yeah, I, I mean, I can, I can see that, and and again, unfortunately, it becomes like a self fulfilling prophecy of us not having a seat at the table. We've, we've often talked about digital analytics sitting at the kids table at the holiday party, you know, at the little card table tacked onto the end of the fancy formal dining table. We're not. We're not there with the adults. And and I think part of it is is a self-fulfilling prophecy where when we do get the opportunity to show up, we don't show up with confidence. And and then they say, Well, this is why they're sitting at the kids' table. We can't have them showing up at the at the adult table, you know, and, and acting childish. And so not not to say it's not difficult because yes, and myself included, so many of us overthink, overanalyze things about ourselves and often come to very negative conclusions that, again, we don't deserve to be there. I'm not qualified. Like, I, I can't tell you how many times early in my career I'm like, how did I graduate from college? Like, I must have fooled someone and someone is going to eventually figure it out that I was a fraud and like call me on it and everything's going to fall apart. No, we just, we just, we just think that way. But I think it's important to to address and you know this is a really important episode because while we can talk about the the tangible pieces and the logistics of why we kind of get stuck in this reporting dashboarding frame of mind really I think the more valuable important conversation is the fact that we do have some very known things, whether it's imposter syndrome, um, whether it's uh, lack of training and mentoring on how to present to executives, you know, how to defend your, your ideas, how to properly prepare and come to discuss how the data was collected, how it was processed, how it was calculated. We don't really have a lot of those conversations. You know, we're really, really good at talking about how to collect data, you know, how to make sure we have everything tuned up to do personalization correctly. You know, we're talking about how to make sure we're not getting in trouble with GDPR and compliance issues. We're really good about talking about data visualization techniques, but not a lot of people in our space are talking about, well, how do we overcome imposter syndrome? How do we overcome this feeling that we don't belong at the table? How do we properly prepare to present to executives? We, we don't have those conversations. And those are very, very meaningful conversations, I believe, for getting us out of the basement, for getting us away from the kids' table to where we can sit with the adults, we can be in the boardroom, and we can be peers because we absolutely deserve to be there. Um, we have the ability to be there. We have the intelligence to be there. But I think it's up to us and no one else to address some of those key issues that we're not really talking about in our industry that I think can go an incredibly far way to getting us a seat at the table. And and that's not to say that the fundamentals aren't important that, you know, sure, we need to talk about proper data collection. Sure. We need to talk about the best way to visualize data, but if we haven't addressed those issues about our lack of confidence and um, ability to be at the table, as I, as we started out this conversation for, we can have all the data we can, you know, we can be, 
we can we can have the ability to defend it and have an have a very informed conversation with stakeholders but if we're not right mentally to have that we're going to come across as weak people are going to sense it they're going to pounce on it and they're going to push us into the corner so how do we address those um how do we help someone who's maybe suffering from from imposter syndrome how do how do we build confidence as as an industry that can provide recommendations with anybody else at the seat of that table with the organization finance operations marketing you think of all of those other areas of a business that are sitting at that table how can we build confidence to push back when we have the data so so number one i think what we're doing like we just need to be vulnerable enough to talk about it we need to be able to say this is a challenge you know this is something that's hard for me if we can't admit it if we can't openly talk about it we're, we're probably never going to solve it so i think that's a good first step and the fact that you know, at least on social media, we're seeing more and more people being comfortable talking about, you know, what they struggle with in their day to day and, you know, confidence and imposter syndrome. It's great. You know, it's great that we're getting that out there so we can address it from there. Uh, I think there are a few things that need to happen as as analytics organizations. We need to think about how are we going to make our people better and smarter? It's it's really I don't want to say it's easy. It's easier to focus on the hard skills. You know, I'm going to send you to training to learn how to implement X. I'm going to send you to training to learn how to build dashboards in Y. That's easier than taking a step back and saying, okay, how can I understand mentally and cognitively how my team works? And how can I give them the support and training to make them into stronger people on the soft side? We just... We don't do it very well. And then as an industry as a whole, I think we need to prioritize that in the things that we value from a content perspective, from a who we get to speak at conferences. Uh, because again, it's easier to focus on the hard skills. You know, Come to my session to learn how to implement X in GA4. That's going to draw a lot of asses to the seats. Um, and maybe a very important session but not at the cost of not having a session of how can you invest in training your team to build confidence? How can you invest in training your team to learn how to speak the language of business? You know, what things can you do? How can you provide mentoring to your top analysts so that they can sit down and have an incredibly meaningful shoulder to shoulder conversation with the CMO of your organization? Those topics need to be just as, if not more important than the hard skills. And it just feels like they're not right now. Yeah. And you bring up a good one right there. A great example of how to speak the language of business. You, we've talked about this. This is another thing we've talked about ad nauseum. How many organizations both together, 33 sticks, and then early in, earlier in our careers where working with folks on the technical side, they would not put a developer in front of any kind of like senior director or above. Yeah. Like and it's unfortunate a lot. a lot. And it's unfortunate because these, these people have tremendous value to add and, and can help educate. Um, but, but they get um, way too weedsy. It's yeah. The communication is not at the right alignment. I, 
I shared the story of the first time I brought one of our data scientists to an executive readout when I was client side. Yeah. Right. It did like not go well, it went horribly. In fact, the CEO pulled me aside and said, never bring them again. You can take their inputs, you can take their insights and then translate it into a more meaningful conversation for us. So, you know, we, it's not dumbing it down. It's, it's translating it to a level of, of business um, so that we're all on the same, you know, just think about it as trying to sit down and have a meaningful conversation in two completely different languages where you each may understand a few words in the other other language. It's going to be incredibly difficult. So, you know, we need to standardize on some kind of language that we're talking about. And there is a very, you know, specific language when it comes to to business. And um I think a big part of it is lack of training and mentoring. I also think a big part of it is ego, right? In from 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 the more technical side, in that I'm not going to change the way. Like if they if you know if they don't understand it, that's on them that they're not smart enough to understand. I'm like, wrong, wrong approach. Yeah, yeah. Like, and then I, I've been in similar situations where a developer comes in and takes a conversation completely sideways. You know, you're you're getting a, and this is not a knock on the developer at all but it's the working with them on that kind of skill where you have a an executive on board with something and then they go into the details which are not necessary for this particular conversation the this particular executive doesn't care you know they they want you and the reason why they don't care is is they're looking at you as you figure these out why are you bringing them to me if you're bringing them to me, that means there's a concern and I need to stop this right now. That's the way I've, I've learned to interpret that. You know, if you're bringing certain details to an executive, they're going to say, this means it's something I should be concerned of. I don't know what it is. So I'm just going to say no. Right. Yeah. And, and more empathetic, I could not be. I mean, I spent the first six years of my professional career as a software engineer. Um, and I think the first few years I, I had that attitude of, look, if you don't understand what I'm speaking, that's on you, man. Like you got to get with it and get smarter about this tech stuff. Um, but it was only me that I was hurting, right? It was, mm-hmm. I was the one that couldn't communicate. I was the one that my, my career was probably being stunted or, or held back. And again, this shouldn't be an ego thing. This shouldn't be a, I have to dumb it down for an audience. That's not it at all. It's, it's simply knowing your audience and, and preparing and presenting, uh, in in the language that that your audience understands and speaks, it is critically critically important. And again, I'll go back to: we tend to focus so much on the hard skills of what we do, which are very important. But if we don't also focus on the soft skills, all that work in you know building our statistical models and creating this really fancy data visualization are lost because we simply are unable to communicate how it works, the value of it to an audience that that's not their day to day and they don't want it to be their day to day. That's why they hired you, but you need to figure out how do I make this meaningful to, to my audience. And if you can't do that, then you will ultimately end up as Milton, right? Like keep moving your desk until you're down in the basement with a can of cockroach spray. Unfortunately, like that's the path that many of us in the digital analytics space are headed towards Um, If we're unable to recognize the importance of the soft skills of what we do and and make some fundamental changes to improve that side of of what we do, and I don't care if you're an implementer or an architect or an analyst or an optimization strategist, 
this holds true for all of you, that it is a critical, critical piece to being a linchpin to still uh, a word from Seth Godin within the business. Like if you want to truly be a linchpin within your organization, you know, all the statistical knowledge in the world isn't going to get you there. You have to figure out how to add the soft skills to be part of the boardroom, to have those conversations, not as a lesser, but as an equal to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, re- really, really good stuff. And yeah, like again, I got to start to wrap things up. The, the genesis of this was talking about like the difference of reporting versus insights. And that's where we're like, when it comes to insights, there's this line that people get very, very scared to cross. And when they're thinking of their day to day, it's like, I need, sometimes I just need to be as low risk as possible. Yeah. Um, and it's, it, it, it's, and it's, yeah, it's not to be unempathetic of, of that fear. We've all been that as part of our, part of our career, but like there's, there, there needs to be a desire to want to take that risk. And again, like it's easy to say when my job's not on the line, but it's, it's finding a way that to, to mitigate the risk. There's always going to be risk. Yeah. It's mitigating the risk in making those recommendations. That, that's right. And, and something specific about this is that, again, we see it as risky to stick our neck out there and make some conclusions of the data or provide some recommendations. But in fact, it may be even more risky not to do that. Um, and, and I know, you know, we have some listeners that like our sports analogies and some that don't, but in athletics, um, there's this, this concept that the athletes that are trying really hard not to get hurt because they're trying to reduce risk end up getting hurt, right? Mm -hmm. Like when you can't, and, and a lot of it, and that's why sports psychologists, especially uh, athletes coming back from injury, one of the biggest things they're overcoming is not physical therapy, it's mental therapy because the bone is healed, the ligament is healed, but they have this mental barrier of they don't want to get hurt again. So they go out so cautious that they end up getting hurt again. Like they literally have to let that go so they cannot get hurt. And I think the same thing applies here. We think it's risky to go beyond reporting, to go to insights, but I would argue it's actually riskier to not go there because we think we're being safe, but actually we're making ourselves more of a target because we're providing less value. Yeah. And you're going to make me give another Ted Lasso reference. <laughs> um, so, so season two was all about mental health and sports. Like that was one of the major themes of the season. Um, anxiety. Um, so the season, the, uh, the season starts out with um, the, um, at the end of the previous season, the, you know, well, actually, I'm not going to spoil it, but they, they kick <laughs> off the season. They're in you know mid-season, and one of the top players is making a penalty kick, has a penalty kick to win the game. And as he's kicking the ball, he, I mean, he's like, again, one of their top players, as he's kicking the ball, the uh, the mascot, which is a greyhound, gets loose as chasing this bird, which is flying right by the net. The dog jumps up, ball hits the dog, kills the dog. Oh. There's no spoilers here. It's the first episode of the season. <laughs> Um, so of course, like it sends him into a tailspin. And at that point, like he can't make a kick to save his life mm-hmm. and it's all mental. So they yeah. bring in a sports psychologist, which then that was, the, it's not a spoiler. It's the plot device that sets up the entire season. 
But anyway, you, 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 you made me think of that. But then the other thing I thought of, again, another sports reference here, you know, in, in the NFL, like there's this um, the defensive formation called the prevent defense. Mm-hmm. And the joke is, is the prevent defense does everything but prevent you from, you know, the, de- <laughs> the prevent defense prevents you from winning. Yeah. Because it's kind of like a, a formation they'll go into when they're trying to keep the score where it's at, hold the other team off. But because at that point you step back and are trying to prevent any kind of major play, the other team could start to eat up yardage. And the reason why they're able to start making those gains is because you've stopped attacking. Yeah. When you play not to lose, you often lose. And yes. and that's that's the case here. When you when you play not to get exposed, not to have the light shown on you, you often lose. And and I hate to keep bringing this up, but the fact that these teams were the very first teams of layoffs at the start of the pandemic tell you all you need to know. If if we were providing immense value, if we were seen as linchpins in the organizations, maybe we don't survive the layoffs, but I guarantee you it's not round one. Yeah, very true. Um, so to, to wrap things up, I'm going to ask one one final question. Thinking about everything we just discussed, what does all of this mean in the context of sustainable analytics? Well, it means that we need to be providing something valuable. And I think that really is at the core of a lot of these discussions. Um, From a sustainability standpoint, um, if we're creating value, that in itself is going to drive sustainability. If it's something that is meaningful and creating value, that's going to create not only a desire, but it's going to create an emphasis. It's going to create the resources necessary necessary to sustain your analytics practice um, because it is creating value. You know, think about anything that you own personally. If if it's not creating value, how motivated are you to sustain it, to maintain it? Probably not very. But if you have something that you cherish as an incredibly valuable to you, it's going to create this mindset of, I need to make sure that I maintain this. I want this to sustain for years in the future. So I do that with my cookware, right? Like I have some cookware that is incredibly valuable to me. I don't have to create a model for how to sustain that cookware. It just, I have a, a mental desire to. And so every time I cook, I go through, it's okay, okay. I need to, you know, clean my, my cast iron. I need to reseason it. I go through this process. Like, and I almost find joy in the sustainability of it as much as if not more than actually using it. And so if if we're actually using the data, if, if we're actually getting real meaning and value out of it, it is going to be that that spark, that fire that's going to drive us to create some sustainable practices around it because we don't want to lose it because it is so valuable. If it's just eh, take it or leave it, we can rebuild it somewhere else. It's going to be really difficult to think in terms of sustainability because it doesn't matter, you know, just throw it away. It's kind of like a cheap thing that we got from the, the dollar store. You know, I'm just go buy another one. Yeah. Well, yeah, there, there's, there's that, which um, is the one side, but I think the other side of it too is, is again, where we started this conversation was the idea of like the generation of constantly just generating reports, the, 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 the constant motion and implementation. If you're not, if, if you're just focusing on that, you're creating volume. Mm-hmm. And, the, and, and at that point, if there is something of value, it's hard to find, mm-hmm. or you just create this mess that 
you can't find any kind of value on. Great, great call out. Um, so if we emphasize that as our as our measure of success, then it's not a stretch to get to a point where every Friday I'm sending out an email to the entire team with the spreadsheet with eight thousand rows, and I'm calling it my dashboard. <laughs> right? Yes. Like, yes. yeah, for sure, for sure. Cool. Well, this was good. This was this was a lot of fun. Yeah, I, I didn't expect to kind of go down that path. Um, but as you kind of started talking about it, to me, it just kind of clicked that, yeah. you know, we get so hung up on the the hard skills of our job, but it's the soft skills that have gone untalked about, which are, I think, really holding us back from getting to that place where we can create a sustainable practice that's creating the value, again, that I know we're capable of creating. So it's up and, to us to fix it. And I think it's something too i know you mentioned it often i think we should continue to repeat it is at the start of the pandemic the analytics the digital marketing teams were the first to be let go that's right because what they were seen as teams that were additional they were extra some value like they they were not seen as critical to the organization that's right we need to be critical because we are yeah so Cool. We will go ahead and wrap up there and we will talk to everyone later. See you. See ya. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of 33 Tangents. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate and review the show on your favorite podcast aggregator so others can find us. If you would like to reach us, you can do so by emailing podcast at 33sticks.com or on the web at 33tangents.33sticks.com. 33 Tangents is a production of 33 Sticks, an analytics boutique.